Hey, this is Brent Jensen. You're listening to No Sleep Till Sudbury, the show where we talk about the music that makes your skin vibrate. The show is brought to you by Pariah Pickups down in Detroit Rock City. What you want, what you need, and what you love. Check them out at pariahpickups.com. And if you want to support the No Sleep Till Sudbury podcast on Patreon, just go to patreon.com slash Brent Jensen Music for details. Let's talk a little bit today about one of the most significant cultural figures of the 20th century, the king of rock and roll himself, Elvis Presley. Presley has sold more than 500 million records worldwide, and he's recognized as the best-selling solo musical artist of all time. He crossed over musical genres and top charts in rock, country, pop, rhythm, and blues, adult contemporary, even gospel. Presley was awarded the Grammy Lifetime Achievement Award at age 36 and still holds several records, including having the highest number of certified gold and platinum albums, the most albums charted on the Billboard Top 200, and also the most number one albums and number one singles by a solo artist on the UK charts. He was even awarded the Presidential Medal of Freedom posthumously just a few years ago in 2018. The legend of Elvis Presley is truly staggering, but his entire story is tragic, almost parable-like. It's sad how such a vital, explosive force devolved so drastically. I've thought a lot about this whole thing in the past, and now this new Elvis movie is out there floating that same familiar premise. Did Presley's demise come as a result of exploitation? Did his manager, Colonel Tom Parker, in essence kill Elvis Presley in this context? Elvis Presley was born on January 8, 1935, in Tupelo, Mississippi, to Vernon and Gladys Love Presley, in a two-room home built by Vernon. Some people don't know this, but baby Elvis had an identical twin brother, Jesse Guerin Presley, who was delivered 35 minutes before him unfortunately, stillborn. Vernon Presley had difficulty staying employed, and the Presley family often relied on government assistance and financial help from neighbors. The home Vernon built was lost when Elvis was just three, after Vernon had tampered with a check written by his sometimes employer. He was convicted and spent nine months in jail, and Gladys and Elvis had to live with relatives. Elvis was encouraged to enter a singing contest when he was nine years old, after impressing his teacher by singing a country song to her before class had started. The Mississippi-Alabama Fair and Dairy Show contest would be Presley's first public performance. He stood on a chair so he could reach the microphone, singing Old Shep and coming in fifth in the contest. A few months later, Presley got his first guitar as a birthday gift. And he would later say that he was disappointed by this because he wanted a bicycle or a rifle instead. Two of his uncles taught him the rudimentary guitar chords, but Presley was very shy about playing it in front of people, playing and singing mostly in private. In 1946, Presley was in grade six, but mostly kept to himself. He started with a new school and didn't have a lot of friends. The following year, he started bringing his guitar to school every day, playing at lunchtime. But he got teased for it. Kids called him a hillbilly. This didn't deter Presley in the least. 
He remained wild about music and focused on little else. As a teen, Presley was very shy, and he was bullied a lot for being a mama's boy. He did compete in a talent show in 1953, however, singing a recent radio hit and gaining some popularity among his classmates as a result, particularly the female ones. Presley played by ear, couldn't read music, and never did receive any type of formal musical training. In the summer of 1953, Presley walked into the offices of Sun Records in Memphis. When he was asked by reception what kind of a singer he was, Presley responded, I sing all kinds. When he was pressed to comment on who he thought he sounded like, Presley responded, I don't sound like nobody. After he had recorded and left the studio, Sun Records boss Sam Phillips asked the receptionist to make note of this young man's name. Her note read, Good Ballad Singer. Hold. Presley earned money as a truck driver during this period, and after a lot of time spent failing auditions and being told to stick to truck driving because he would never make it as a singer, Presley was invited back to Sun Records by Sam Phillips to sing with local musicians Scotty Moore and Bill Black in the hopes of recording a potential hit. The session turned out to be flat, and the three gave up and began to pack up their stuff. It was at that point that Presley picked up his guitar and started to goof off, jumping around the room, singing Arthur Crudup's 1946 hit, That's All Right. He was then joined by Moore, then Black. Sam Phillips was watching from the control room and saw something in their performance. He told the band to stop and start over, play the song with the same spontaneity, and he recorded them. Three days later, radio station listeners heard the track and began calling in to ask who the singer was. Elvis Presley would now be on his way. However, there were still some obstacles to overcome. Presley's delivery wasn't like anything that had ever been heard before. It was like a fusion of R&B and country. Some people considered it to be a curious blending of musics that made it difficult for radio stations to include in their airplay programs. There hadn't previously been a reference point, culturally, against which to compare it. Some DJs wouldn't play him because they said he sounded too black, and black music stations passed on him because he sounded like a hillbilly to them. This musical blend, incidentally, came to be known as rockabilly. Now, I'm not going to get into who technically invented the musical genre of rock and roll here, because there are way too many intricacies and considerations to touch on, and frankly, that's a whole other podcast, really. Another unusual obstacle for Presley proved to be his gyrating, leg-quaking dance moves, said to be an initial result of his stage fright. They caused girls in the audience to scream. Given the times, this caused great concern with respect to moral corruption of the young generation. And where the boys were concerned, even before Presley recorded his first album, he often was surrounded by police detail during shows as he gained popularity because teenage boys would form small gangs to try to assault him. Later in 1954, Presley would be sought after by the record companies, eventually signing a deal with RCA Victor. A little earlier, Presley had come into contact with someone named Colonel Tom Parker, 
who was presented to him as one of the greatest promoters in America at the time. Right after Presley's debut record was made, called simply Elvis Presley, and containing instant mega-hit Heartbreak Hotel, Parker pushed to become Presley's manager. Now, Colonel Tom Parker was not a colonel, nor was his name even Tom or Parker. His name was, in fact, Andreas Cornelis Van Cook, and he claimed to be from West Virginia, when in fact, he actually had come from the Netherlands to America, effectively reinventing himself as an entirely new person. There's also a theory, though for the record unsubstantiated, involving Parker's history. Back in the Netherlands decades previous, in 1929, a woman named Anna van den Enden had been murdered with a blunt object, May 17 of 1929. Van den Enden was only 23, standing in her kitchen in the Dutch city of Breda when she was struck on the head with remarkable force, according to the police report. To this day, the case has never been solved. But the leading suspect was none other than a 19-year-old dock worker named Andreas van Cook. The evidence linking him to the murder is circumstantial, but it's kind of compelling. People say Andreas van Cook knew Anna van den Enden, and they went to the same church. He matched descriptions of a man seen leaving her home around the time of the murder. Authorities suspect that the murderer may well have been interrupted during a burglary, and van Cook was reportedly routinely short on money. The killer had sprinkled pepper around Anna's body after he killed her, likely to prevent police dogs from picking up a scent. Van Cook had trained circus dogs and would have been very familiar with this tactic. Immediately after the murder, he had left town and set out for America, presumably stowing away in a Dutch fishing boat that docked in Mobile, Alabama, resuming his life as a carny in the U.S., working as an elephant handler at a carnival based in West Virginia. Parker had apparently been to the U.S. before. Two years earlier, he had stowed away on a ship and worked illegally for 18 months in carnivals and traveling shows across America until he was deported. Now, this time, he would be here to stay. He changed his name to Thomas A. Parker and claimed his birthplace to be Huntington, West Virginia. When asked about his unusual accent, Van Cook explained that he had picked up his peculiar accent while growing up in the foothills of the Appalachian Mountains, and also while working with many different types of traveling carnivals that featured people from all walks of life. Why did he refer to himself as Colonel, you ask? Well, he was apparently made an honorary colonel in the Louisiana State Militia after helping singer Jimmy Davis become Louisiana's governor. Did he ever serve in the armed forces? Military records suggest that he did enlist, serving as a U.S. Army private in the early 1930s, but then deserted and was discharged for repeated erratic behavior. The records indicate that Parker was labeled a constitutional psychopath by the Army. After leaving the armed forces and trying his hand at a few menial jobs, he next became a concert promoter and talent manager. 
By this time, Parker was obesely overweight, having packed on the pounds as a means of dodging the World War II draft in the event that his previous psychiatric diagnosis failed to prevent him from being drafted. Parker was obnoxious, manipulative, and intensely controlling. He drew heavily on his earlier experiences as a carnival huckster in his new role as a talent agent. Back in his days as a carny, he figured out ways to manipulate situations and people to make money constantly. Once, as a carny, he had orchestrated a scheme that left an audience no other choice but to leave a circus tent via an exit that led them into an area where they would be ankle-deep in animal manure. Luckily for them, he presented the opportunity to rent donkeys they could ride if they wanted to avoid slogging through a field of animal waste. Parker managed the career of singer Eddie Arnold shortly after he began his career as a talent manager, eventually getting him his own network television show. But when Arnold attempted to free himself from the manipulative clutches of his manager, he discovered that the fine print of their contract stipulated a buyout as the only option and it cost Arnold $50,000. Parker would now focus his attentions on a poor white kid from Tupelo, Mississippi, eventually developing him into the most popular entertainer the world had ever seen. He continually promoted Elvis as a singer, then as a TV star, then a film star. And all the while, Parker kept half of Elvis's income, and kept the star firmly under his thumb. Now, this is especially frustrating when you consider the fact that Presley would without a doubt have achieved fame, regardless of who his management was. Yeah, Parker was shrewd and he had good ideas, but he was also a shameless con artist who routinely treated people with disrespect, and he was proud of it, saying, quote, You don't have to be nice to people on the way up if you're not coming back down. According to the new film entitled Elvis, Colonel Tom Parker was credited with more or less creating the concept of merchandising. In addition to the fans that swooned over Elvis, Parker assumed there would also be people who disliked him. So, Parker created I Hate Elvis badges right alongside the I Love Elvis badges that he manufactured in a bid to make even more money. Parker fully understood the power he wielded as Presley's manager and squeezed outrageous sums of money out of people on Elvis's back. Promoters looking to have Elvis perform in their venues were informed that they had to put up $50,000 in cash up front. And in the event that there was a conflict and the show didn't work out, Parker still kept 10%. By 1967, his contracted deal with Presley was that he retained 50% of Elvis's earnings from music, films, and merchandise. But it was said that Parker also charged Presley for all of his personal expenses, regardless of size. A coffee, Danish, toothbrushes. Presley paid for all of it, likely without even knowing, simply because he hated the business side of entertainment and wanted nothing to do with it. He would often sign Parker's contracts without even reading them. Parker steered Presley towards doing movies because he knew that there was a lot more money to be made as a result. He commanded a $1 million per movie fee back then, an outrageous sum of money to ask for. But he got it. Between 1956 and 1972, Presley started more than 30 movies, sometimes churning out three pictures a year 
At one point, Presley said to his then-wife Priscilla, I'm so tired of playing Elvis Presley. But Elvis Presley was Colonel Tom Parker's golden goose, and he would run him into the ground. Presley's reputation began to suffer for that endless raft of B-movies with accompanying soundtracks that were issued only so that Parker could honor his contract with RCA. Fans began to refer to Elvis as a has-been and a joke. Then, Parker put Presley back on the road following the success of his 1968 television special, and Presley was invigorated to perform live again. Offers came in from all over the world. London offered Parker $28,000 for a week of shows at the Palladium. Parker, full of his usual bluster, responded, Well, that's enough for me, but what can you get for Elvis? Presley told reporters he wanted to play shows in Europe and see parts of the world he'd never seen. But Parker backpedaled, reluctant to book Presley internationally, despite the massive amounts of money that they were being offered to do so. He told Presley that venues in Europe and Australia weren't suitable for a star of his caliber, and that foreign security was very poor, and it would be dangerous for him to tour internationally. But the real reason for this, of course, was that Colonel Tom Parker, also known as Andreas Cornelis Van Kook, did not have a passport, and did not want one, because since he had initially entered the country illegally, if he left, he would likely not get back in. He also didn't want to be anywhere near the Netherlands. Something happened years ago in 1960 that would shake Parker up considerably. After decades of successfully hiding his true identity, he received a letter from a member of his family back in the Netherlands. One of Parker's sisters was getting her hair done, flipping through a magazine that featured a picture of Elvis in his army uniform, waving to some of his fans. But it was the figure standing behind Presley that caught her attention. He was captioned as Colonel Tom Parker, but she recognized him as her brother, Andreas. Her son, Parker's nephew, wrote the letter to Parker after she told him about it. Parker was said to have admitted his identity at that point, but was thought to have paid members of his family off in exchange for their silence. In Louis the World Tour Presley wanted, Parker attempted to placate Presley with a Las Vegas residency for him instead, which he eventually accepted. The reason for this, allegedly, was that Parker had a terrible gambling habit and by 1977 had amassed a colossal debt estimated to be upwards of $30 million owed to Hilton Hotels. By turning Presley into a Vegas lounge act through residency at the newly opened International Hotel, otherwise known as the Las Vegas Hilton, the hotel discreetly promised to cancel Parker's enormous gambling debts. Presley would end up playing more than 600 shows at the Hilton as a result. Imprisoned in Las Vegas and trotted out on the road at Parker's whim, Presley developed a dependency on prescription drugs and painkillers to keep up with his performance schedule. Naturally, his health began to deteriorate, both physically and mentally. Regardless, Parker would push him to perform, even though towards the end he was barely conscious backstage before some shows and would have to have his head dunked in ice water to wake him up. 
A few years before, the Colonel betrayed his star by selling Presley's entire album catalog to RCA for just over $5 million. Grossly undervalued when you think about the significance of these recordings and their place in the history of music. Presley would receive less than half of that amount. Five years after Presley's death, the Elvis Presley estate took Colonel Tom Parker to court, accusing him of management fraudulence and sought significant damages. In response, he made perhaps his most brazen move to date, even by his standards. He declared that he could not be sued under U.S. federal law because he was not a citizen of the United States. The case was eventually settled out of court, and all of Presley's audio and video recordings were relinquished to the Elvis Presley estate in exchange for $2 million. Colonel Tom Parker died in 1997, barely worth $1 million and widely recognized as the man who made Elvis Presley, but also the one who killed him. The real tragedy is that in looking back on how Presley's life and career would so unfortunately unfold, the best Elvis Presley impersonator may well have been Elvis Presley himself. This has been No Sleep Till Suffering with Brian Jensen. Till next time, folks. Take good care. Brent Jensen is the best-selling author of No Sleep Till Sudbury, Leftover People, and All My Favorite People Are Broken. All titles available in stores and on Amazon Worldwide.